Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The U.S. economy is losing like $9 billion a year almost every year that we allow these 2.2 million Americans to live without running water. And it's having major effects on health. Like it's causing hundreds of thousands of new cases, preventable cases of waterborne illness every year. It's causing... Um, 36,000 new cases of type 2 diabetes because people have easier access to sugar-sweetened beverages than water. It's causing 71,000 new cases of mental illness, like anxiety and depression every year. Again, completely avoidable. But, you know, the, the stress of waking up every day and, and understanding, like, how am I going to get enough water? Wow, to make it through the day and organizing your entire life around that question. It's taking away hundreds of millions of work hours from adults that have to spend that time sick or collecting water. It's taking hundreds of millions of, of school hours away from children. It's taking away time for parents to play with their kids and connect and build like a healthy, happy home life. And of course, it's, it's costing lives. We estimate that about 610 people die every year because of the impact of the U.S. water access gap. That might not seem like a huge number, but I mean, it's like two passenger planes falling from the sky every year. Again, completely avoidable. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. George, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Trini. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about you by way of uh, Cher Hale, who at this point is pretty much the gold standard for how to pitch podcast guests for the Unmistakable Creative. She could be teaching a class on how to do this because she's literally the only person I have never said no to. Because every time she sends me somebody, they're not only amazing, um, but she really understands it. So no pressure at all. But uh, on that note, um, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you made with your own life and career? Well, much like me, my parents have never done just one thing for work. <laughs> um, let's see. I grew up as a Navy brat. So my dad was a naval officer. And we lived all over the place. And um, my mom, who I think had studied accounting, was a librarian when they met, um, left work to raise my sister and I. And then when we were in high school, started an, uh, an interior design business. And since then, my dad has started a real estate business. He's worked in plastics manufacturing. Now they own a little resort in the Midwest together, um, all over the map. Yeah. Well, 
okay, so the the Navy brat thing is interesting to me because I'm always sort of fascinated by people who have lived in all these different places because I was one of them. Um, have you heard the term third culture kid? Yeah, I'm definitely a third culture kid. I mean, I only have one passport. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like to be like... Okay, culture, yeah, me too. Me too. Time. Although sometimes, yeah. you know, when I'm going from country to country, especially in the last couple of months, I was like, I feel like Matt Damon and Born Identity. I keep swapping SIM cards. I'm not nearly as cool or kicking anybody's ass, but... Um, or getting <laughs> shot at. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. I wonder, you know, for you, the experience of being a third culture kid, one, how did that shape your own personal relationships with people in your life, your friendships, um, as well as your entire sort of worldview? Well, ironically, I think growing up as a third culture kid made me maybe crave the opposite now. <laughs> I crave like a sense of place and stability. I've lived in the same house in Los Angeles for like a decade. And when I imagine leaving, sometimes it makes me <laughs> it makes me feel crazed. Um, but I think to understand the the way the sort of third culture kid of it all impacted me growing up, you have to understand that there were two diametrically opposed forces in my young life. So there was the sort of sense of adventure and moving around all the time that came with being the son of a naval officer. And then also, um, I grew up in a really conservative religious household. Um, and as a closeted queer kid, um, that meant a lot of rigid, rigidity and, and rules and predictability. So those two forces have kind of always been fighting each other in my life. Um, and I think they have had a major impact on, on my relationships and on the way I approach my work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, like you said, those are two diametrically opposed ideas and there are two things that I wonder one what are the positives of sort of the rigidity of growing up in a religious household? Because I've talked to a lot of people on this show who were raised with extremely religious parents. And I feel like it goes in one of two directions. Either they completely rebel from the whole thing and write it off, or <laughs> yeah. it actually ends up being, you know, this really wonderful thing because I'd always jokingly said my issue with religion, particularly because I'm Indian is that it's time consuming because all Indian religious traditions take forever. And half the time, my parents can't even explain what 90% of the, the yeah. significance is of any of it, uh -huh. which drives me crazy. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, I had somebody like Bob Goff here. And mm. when I hear Bob Goff talk about religion, it's just this beautiful thing. Um, it's warm, it's community. It's just all these things that we all want, but, you know, religion being one place to get them. So one, I'd wonder what the positive impacts are, but then also, how in the world, you know, as a queer kid, do you navigate that dynamic with having a father who's a naval officer and a religious household? I mean, what is the experience of coming out to your parents who are, you know, th this conservative? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, I think... I mean, actually, you, you really hit the nail on the head. Like these are diametrically opposed forces. How do you reconcile them? And I think that is what spirituality and religion have been for me. Um, they've been uh, an engine for curiosity, a system of belief that can allow you to hold two seemingly opposite things as true at the same time in your life. Um, so much of religion and spirituality is about celebrating that paradox Um and I think for me, it hasn't been just rebellion or just reconciliation. I think it's been a cycle of both. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I may be currently in a more rebellious phase at the moment, but it has been this beautiful um, place that I have found community and creativity. And my understanding of, of God and purpose and relationship has changed so much over time. I think that if I were to try to encapsulate where I sit now in that spectrum between rigidity and exploration, um, the word that I would use is maybe hospitality, um, mm. like creating a sense of comfort and place for yourself and for other people, um, sometimes in a foreign place or amid a, a set of experiences that are difficult or um, uncomfortable. And I think that that's 
what I do in my work and what I do in my personal life. Like, I love to entertain. I love to meet new people. I love to connect them to each other. I love to travel. Um, but yet, you know, through all of that, I'm, I'm always trying to impart a sense of hospitality and, and enjoy and appreciate other people's hospitality too. I think it's such a tremendously human gift. Yeah. Tell me about the day you came out to your parents. I'm, I'm just trying to imagine this conversation <laughs> with a, a conservative naval officer who's extremely religious finding out that his son is gay. Well, you know, I, my dad was pretty chill about it. I, uh, I didn't come out of the closet until I was 29. I'm only 35 now. So late bloomer. Wow. I think like many things in my life, I really, and you know, before I came out of the closet, I, I didn't even kiss a boy. Like I was really, I was really focused on figuring out what this meant and how it played into my life. Like I didn't come out of the closet until well into my career, into the running the organization that I do now. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, their reaction um, was was difficult. I mean, to their credit, I think my, the first thing my parents both said was, we love you. Um, my mother wondered if I was coming out because I had AIDS. I think that's like, you know, a common thing um, still that parents ask their, Mm -hmm. you know, sons, especially when they come out of the closet. Um, the, the, I think the, the funny thing about coming out is, um, I have a stepson and he came out as straight to, um, to his dad when he was little and, you know, watching him grow up with all of his friends in, in elementary and middle school, they're, they're always exploring this sense of identity, right? Like if you look at Gallup polls, um, more kids identify as queer than ever before. I think something like 15%. And yeah. I was confronted with this idea that like, well, maybe someday you won't have to come out anymore. And like, what would that be like? And, and it was a little bit of a bittersweet thought because there's something so powerful about that process of taking the time to wrestle with your own identity and understand it. It's so confronting and for many people really damaging, but I think if you can push past it, it can make you so compassionate and curious and open. Um, and the conversations you have with people that you think go one way, inevitably go a different direction completely. And it teaches you a lot about relationships and about, you know, what it is to be a human being. There is something really magical about that queer experience that I think makes queer people magical themselves. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny that you say that so many kids identify as queer today. Cause I remember one of my friends said that he, he just seeing, you know, his daughter going through high school, he said, now it's become trendy to identify as queer. It's no longer, you know, something that you're ashamed of. In fact, it's like, Oh, I'm straight. I'm not cool. And I don't fit. <laughs> well, I mean, it's been trendy to so identify weird. as, it's been trendy to identify as straight for long enough. So I think, yeah, I think we can handle Well, I just, I thought that was kind of direct, funny. Like, it to, is funny. To, you know, I mean, that, that. it's the sort of like concentration and essentialization of culture that is high school. Like that is, I mean, even just thinking back to that, like in your body, doesn't that give you like the chills <laughs> being that age? Oh God, I would never want to be that age again. Oh my it's like, yeah, I always say it's like teenagers. Well, we do this weekly segment mm-hmm. uh, called the unmistakable creativity hour. And for some reason, for the first six weeks, every week we'd have like some knock on teenagers and why they're idiots. You know, yeah, it would be like, that, you're a listening, you think you're smarter than you are. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, well, so when you uh, talk about moving around, was it different countries or primarily within the U.S.? Primarily in the U.S., um, East, West, okay. North, South. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Was there a sort of culture shock from one place to another? Because, you know, it's funny. People ask me about culture shock and, you know, we moved from Australia to Canada to Texas to California. And I was like, Canada to Texas was culture shock and Texas to California was culture shock because Texas and California feel like different countries. You don't even feel like you're in the United States, even though you're you are. Yeah, I think a lot of people take for granted that the U.S. is one country, but it really I mean, culturally, it's really not. I mean, now running an organization that works all over the U.S., being based in L.A., but, you know, doing work on the ground in rural parts of the Southwest, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border region, Appalachia, Alaska, Alabama. It's like each one of those is their own country, their own sort of dialect, their way of understanding human relationships, economic value. Um, So I got a window into that really early in life, which I appreciate. Um, But I always thought that I would grow up and work abroad. So I've always been really passionate about water and I wanted to work in water access. And I thought if you, if you wanted to do that work, you had to do it in another country, you know, places without running water in sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, Central Asia or Latin America, or I never realized that that problem existed here at home. And I think, um, really digging into it in this way has been an incredibly eye-opening experience about how diverse and awesome and messed up and confusing and exciting this country is. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do want to get deep into all of that. Um, one thing I wonder is, did your parents encourage you to pursue any particular career paths or was it just do what you want and <laughs> you know we'll support it? Because, you know, I mean, for me as the Indian kid, it's like, you know, we expect you to get good grades and, you know, here are your choices, doctor, lawyer, engineer. You know, it's funny because like for, for, for parents who are so controlling in so many ways, I, 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 I really don't think there was any, um, there was any sort of control exercise over what I would study or what I would become. In fact, I mean, I was missing that. <laughs> I'm not even sure my parents knew where I was applying to college. They just knew that I wanted to yeah. go to college, which is, is so funny. Um, if you know them, cause they have such strong opinions about so many things, but I was given a lot of freedom there. And I think my parents trusted me to, to pursue my passion and to, to turn my curiosity into something worthwhile. Yeah. So what is it that sparked this interest in, you know, water of all things. I'm an avid surfer. So water is this very beautiful thing to me. Um, and I think water is this just incredibly powerful substance that we kind of take for granted, but you've looked at it from a very different angle. Like, like where in the world did you become interested in this? Because this isn't the kind of thing where you go to your high school guidance counselor and say, you know what? My passion is, you know, access to water. Yeah. I mean, you really hit it on the head. It's a little, it's a little amorphous. It's a little difficult to pin down. I don't know. I've always been obsessed with water ever since I was a kid. Like I was, I was the kid that, you know, mom would take me to the zoo and she'd go buy the tickets and she'd turn around and I'd be like stripped naked playing in the fountain in the, in the entryway. Um, (laughs) You couldn't keep me away from it. But I, you know, growing up in a, in a relatively, I think like sheltered home life, I never really understood that there were millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of people um, that lacked access to this thing that I was so obsessed with until I got to college, which is awfully late to figure this out. Um, and I think like any good millennial at the time, I was like, you know, there was all of this energy in the early 2000s around like, oh, you know, entrepreneurship and solving problems. And I thought like, oh, well, that's something I, I immediately care about and, and want to get involved in. And like I said, I, I thought if you wanted to make a difference here, you had to do it in someone else's country. Um, which, you know, ended up being so naive and misdirected, but I did learn a lot through that process. I think, uh, 
Well, I mean, you asked for specifics. I think in college I was doing this, uh, I was doing a degree in political science, um, <laughs> the soft sciences. And, uh, I got to, uh, a capstone class for, uh, a sort of undergraduate thesis and we were studying international human rights law. And I was supposed to take one of the rights from the universal declaration of human rights that was you know, signed by all the member countries of the UN. And I was supposed to turn it into a proposal for a big thesis I would do over the course of the semester. And I was late and I hadn't done the homework and I had this like really intense Romanian ex-UN diplomat professor. And I wrote quickly at the library before class, this proposal on the human right to water. And I brought it and I checked it in and uh, he turned it back after class with this big, like, see me on it. He's like, well, did you read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? I was like, well, yes, professor, of course I did. He said, well, I know you didn't, because if you had, you would have noticed that water was not among the human rights that we, you know, listed in 1945. Um, you know, so many others are there, freedom of religion and freedom of expression, even access to housing and food. But water wasn't among the rights that we listed. People just have taken it so for granted for so long. He's like, if you want to pass this class, um, I'm not going to let you redo this assignment. Instead, you're going to have to spend the rest of the semester arguing why there should be a human right and how you'd protect it through international law that exists now. And the whole thing will be much harder for you. Um, and that's your punishment. And, you know, my punishment became my passion. Wow. That, that's amazing. You know, before we get into sort of the, the reality of the situation, you took that punishment and you turned it into something beautiful. There are a lot of people who in college would have been like, to hell with this professor, I'm going to drop the class or be really irritated by that. But you actually responded to this instead of reacting to it. Why do you think that is? I think it goes back to being queer again. I mean, I know, I know a lot of queer people listening to this will, will identify with this because <laughs> it's like a, a favorite topic of conversation among my friends. You know, I, we, we just grow up, um, especially if you grow up closeted, like you, you really want to please people. Um, to prove your value to them or maybe to keep them liking you so that if they guess your secret, they'll still like you, you know, they'll still have something to, to cling to. And so I think we get really good from a young age at reading people and at wanting to please them. And sometimes this can become a very unhealthy obsession. There's a, a book I love called best little boy in the world, um, which is really about this syndrome. Um, but in the best moments, this can be sort of a, an engine for um, passion and creativity and forward motion. And so you know, when that professor came to me and said, I'm disappointed in you and I want you to do better. And here's how you can prove yourself to me. I was like, great. That's, that's really clear. I know exactly what to do to make you like me. I'm going to blow this out of the water. Um, and in doing so, I, I couldn't help but become obsessed myself. Um, I will say too, that obviously that, that tendency has a dark side and I've battled that a lot as an adult. Like how do you live unapologetically in the world, um, without being obsessed with just making everyone around you happy with you? Yeah. Um, well, that, that's the validation spiral, man. That's, that's a whole, so that's a whole episode in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. I don't have that degree. Thank, thank God. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this idea of, of clean water. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I just watched your Ted talk before we uh, got, you know, on, on our call here and I was just kind of stunned when I heard some of the things that you said, because to your point, I, I never thought of the United States as a place where we don't have clean water, but the whole idea of water as a human right, it's it just, you're right. It's something we take for granted. Uh, you know, I mean, I've literally bottled water sitting here on my desk and I've never thought to myself, wow, this is 
a privilege and it's just to me it's oh this is a necessity i don't even think of it as some sort of privilege yeah it really is amazing i mean it's like so many things that are bubbling to the surface of this country now right that you that we maybe took for granted or assumed had been taken care of a long time ago in what we thought was sort of like a i don't know postmodern, post-racist you know society where we're all working together i think there's so many things like this lurking under the surface. We're one of the only high-income countries in the world that has a problem like this. 2.2 million Americans and growing, which is, I think, you know, the most messed up part, who don't have any running water at home. And that's not, that's not like Flint, you know, where there's running water and it's not safe to drink all the time. It's, you know, these uh-huh. folks are getting up every morning and wondering, how will I get enough clean water for me and my family to survive today. And they're walking outside of the house with a bucket and pulling it out of a mine shaft or a spring or a stream. Or if they're lucky, they're driving to the store and buying that bottled water that you and I take for granted sometimes. And that's like the lifeline they have to cook and clean and drink and bathe. And it causes all a host of problems. Um, but yeah, it's, it's happening right here in the richest democracy on earth. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, being abroad right now and, and just having visited a doctor this morning, I think about all the things in the United States, which is the, the richest democracy on earth, where a lot of things are yeah. not accessible to the average person, healthcare just being one of them. But how the hell is this narrative so not prevalent? Like, I, I mean, honestly, until I knew I was interviewing you, I didn't know a damn thing about this. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, I think there are a lot of different answers to that question, and it's probably a, a mix of many things. One the communities impacted are invisible to a lot of Americans. Like think like we invested what would be today, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars to get running water to 99% of Americans starting in the 1930s with the new deal and with other massive federal uh, investment programs. But those programs were never designed to reach everybody. You know, they, they left out either by design or accidentally, you know, people on tribal reservations, um, low-income communities of color in rural areas and agricultural communities in border towns. Um, and those communities are now being joined by um, others that are experiencing economic shifts like, you know, the end of coal mining in Appalachia or major climate change impacts like Alaskan native villages, um, you know, the canaries in the coal mine. And so the number's growing, but it, it's no surprise no one knows about it, at least to me, because these are... These are the communities that have been deliberately marginalized for almost our entire history as a country and haven't been given agency and haven't been given a voice. And so problems like this, I think, are invisible for that reason. And and then when they do come to the surface, when they do bubble to the surface, they're uncomfortable to look at. And so I think a lot of people think, well, I'm going to take the attention and energy that I might focus on something like a lack of access to running water or on homelessness in my neighborhood or on something else that's close to home and uncomfortable and they and they spend that energy and that money and that attention on problems that are comfortably further away in other countries um in in other problems that just don't feel as intense uh and i see no. both of those dynamics at play and i think it's a it's a nasty combination so i understand you know what the consequences of this are in you know developing countries i mean mm -hmm. obviously being of indian descent i've spent time in india and i've, I've seen you know the 
results of this, like disease, um, people getting sick, uh, and a whole host of other issues. But what are the consequences in the United States? Are they the same? Or are they other consequences that we don't see? Because I know you mentioned there are just a whole host of uh, problems that arise from this issue. I think the crazy thing about the problem is that they are so similar. Um, and we've been trying to really dig in and measure this. So we we published the first national report on water and sanitation access in 2019 called Closing the, the uh, Gap, Closing the U.S. Water Access Gap. Um, and it was the first to sort of look at this problem as a whole and say, okay, what what is going on and how are people experiencing this? And we found that there's a major race component at play. You know, if you're indigenous, you're 19 times more likely than a white family not to have running water. If you're black or Latino, you're twice as likely. We found that this exists in all 50 states, that it's growing in a lot of places, that it's not just, you know, small individual families or rural folks living off the grid, that this is entire communities. And some of it's urban and peri-urban in places like San Francisco or Michigan. Um, but I think at that time, we couldn't really dig into, okay, we know we know from our interactions with these families what this looks like in daily life, but how do we measure that impact? So for the last two years, we've been working on an economic impact study that asks exactly your question, Trini. Like, what what does this look like on a day-to-day basis in people's lives and what economic impact is that having? Because sometimes when you can put um, a dollar amount behind that, it, it becomes much more real. Um, and so we found that the U.S. economy is losing like $9 billion a year almost every year that we allow these 2.2 million Americans to live without running water. And it's having major effects on health. Like it's causing hundreds of thousands of new cases, preventable cases of waterborne illness every year. It's causing um, 36,000 new cases of type two, type two diabetes because people have easier access to sugar, sweetened beverages than water. It's causing 71,000 new cases of mental illness, like anxiety and depression every year. Again, completely avoidable, but you know, the, the stress of waking up every day and, and understanding like, how am I going to get enough water? Wow. To make it through the day. And organizing your entire life around that question. Um, It's taking away hundreds of millions of work hours from adults that have to spend that time sick or collecting water. It's taking hundreds of millions of of school hours away from children. It's taking away time for parents to play with their kids and connect and build like a healthy, happy home life. And of course, it's it's costing lives. Um, We estimate that about 610 people die every year um, because of the impact of the U.S. water access gap. That might not seem like a huge number, but I mean, it's like two passenger planes falling from the sky every year. Again, completely avoidable. Wow. Wow. Um, So, I mean, just the fact that it's easier to access, you know, like beverages like a Coca-Cola than it is water for these people, that's crazy. So, I mean, does that mean it's the same for alcohol? Like, is it easier for them to access alcohol too? No, I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily the same. Um, I think that those, those sugar sweetened beverages have a really strong distribution game, right? I mean, that's why those companies are so big and so successful and, and there's nothing wrong with that by itself, but when you have to make a choice with, you know, how to spend your dollar and you're confronted Uh not only with easier access to sugar sweetened beverages, but also like maybe more aggressive marketing and this idea in the back of your head that like, Hey, if I'm going to spend this hard earned dollar, Am I going to spend it on water or am I going to spend it on something that has more perceived value? Like there's more, there's more to a soda substance wise. Mm. <laughs> and so it feels more valuable to folks. Um, and I think that is what is so difficult. So 
I guess then, you know, this raises a question of sort of roles and responsibilities mm -hmm. in terms of fixing this problem. So I, I want to hear about, you know, what are sort of the potential solutions, but what are the roles and responsibilities of individuals like me and other people listening to this who take this for granted? Um, what are the roles and responsibilities of people like the beverage companies and what are the roles and responsibilities of our political leaders? Well, I'm going to start with the last one first, because I think it's the most important. Yeah. I mean, when you live in a democracy like ours, you know, there's this idea of the social contract. Like we, we give up so much, so much of our freedom to government in exchange for security and basic resources. And sometimes that that social contract is actually written down as as in the relationship between Native American tribes and the U.S. government uh, in a treaty. And in both cases, that social contract has been broken. Like government should be the one ensuring that each of its citizens have access to the basics they need to live a healthy life with dignity. And that those are those are human rights. You know, the, a human right is primarily something that you have in relationship to your government that guarantees it for you, whether it's a sort of negative space to live your life, to, to freely express your religion, to assemble, to engage with the press, or whether it's a positive thing like access to um, health care, food, medicine, water in a very basic way that it allows you to live with dignity. And I think, you know, the government of the U.S. is really falling down on that job. And it, and it hasn't always been that way. We made these massive investments in infrastructure starting through the, starting in the 30s through the 80s because we knew it was the right thing to do and because we, we wanted to boost public health and we wanted to create economic growth in rural parts of the country. And because we wanted to eliminate cholera and we wanted people to be flourishing in this country. And then there was this shift, this like economic thinking shift that came with the liberalization era, the Reagan Thatcher era, this idea that, well, maybe it shouldn't be the government's job to do all that. Maybe the market can do it more efficiently. Um, and what was lost was any sort of protection for people wh whom the market can't reach or who can't engage with the market. And so those pockets have continued to be unserved. And now because of climate change and other economic shifts and a legacy of disinvestment, that problem is growing. And not only is the U.S. government not addressing it in a really focused way, but they don't even have their eye on the ball. We, we used to ask in the census, does your house have a flushing toilet? And we stopped asking that question in 2016 at a time when that number was growing and no one can figure out why. Why, why, do, why is the problem becoming less visible and not more visible at a time when it's getting worse? So, I mean, I spend a lot of my time interacting with lawmakers and policymakers, incredible people who want to solve this problem. I think we need a coordinated national response to this. Um, President Biden incorporated has incorporated a lot of this issue and our work and our research into his environmental justice agenda. But this can't be a partisan issue. Um, and, and, it, and really, it's not on the ground. Like We have incredible support on both sides of the aisle um, from lawmakers who really understand the needs of some of their communities, especially in more rural states. Um, but the government, man, we got it. We got to approach this problem in a way that is really focused on closing that gap completely. And we haven't done that yet. No. And then what about the role of individuals, you know, on day to day? Like, what is our responsibility here? And, you know, what do we do that basically causes us to just kind of neglect this responsibility? I don't think there's one answer to that. I mean, that's a question I've been asking myself multiple times a day for the last 12 years that I've been working on this issue. And the answer for me has changed a lot. Like, you know, at first it was learn more and it, and then it was like help others. And then it was like, okay, start your own thing. And, and the, 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 the answer to that question has changed over time. And I think that's a really healthy thing to be asking. Um, yeah. 
But I, I do get that a question a, a lot from people like, what are, what are we supposed to do? How do we engage? And, you know, so often when you engage with a nonprofit, like dig deep, the answer is like, okay, well give us money or sign this petition. <laughs> and those yeah. things are important. You know, like we, we are completely operate on grassroots funding and a hundred percent of that money goes directly to projects. And if people weren't motivated to give, we wouldn't exist. So yeah, that, that for some people is the answer. You know, that's a mm -hmm. quick way to have a really tangible impact. But if you want to go deeper, if you're kind of hearing this and maybe surprised by not knowing it, not understanding it, and you maybe look internally and think like, wow, I have no connection to that problem at all. Um, I had the conversation, a really interesting conversation with a board member of mine who's, you know, roughly my age, maybe a couple of years older. This was, I don't know, like six or seven years ago. And he said, you know, I, I've really enjoyed working on this issue, but I, you know, I have kids now and they're growing up and I need to get more involved locally and I need to get involved in their school. And I, I just don't feel like this problem really impacts me and my family as much. And I want to focus my energy there. Um, and I said, well, before you go, why don't we try and experiment and why don't we live for a week on just a gallon or four liters of water a day? Um, mm. Because that's what most of our clients are are using. That's about all they can get a day, you know, is a gallon. So what would it be like if we had to do what our clients do on the Navajo Nation, for instance, and make that stretch? Like, I, I know this woman named Brenda Johnson who, like, I, I was so stunned the first time I met her because she took, she took a bucket of water inside and I watched her wash some vegetables and then catch it and then boil some pasta and then strain it. And then she took the water into the living room and she put some soap in it. Everyone washed their hair in it. And then she took it to the bathroom and poured it in the toilet tank and used it to flush the toilet. And it was like, whoa, those two liters of water just got used four times. Um, mm -hmm. And so what would it be like to, to do that for a day? And so this thing called the four liters challenge was born. Like, what would it be like to take at first a week and live on just four liters of water a day for everything you do, you know, take a, a gallon milk jug. And if you're going to brush your teeth or you're going to cook your food, or you're going to wash your armpits or you're going to drink, like it's going to come out of that gallon. Um, eventually, I mean, that's hardcore. Eventually we, we shortened that into just a 24 hour time frame, but it's an incredible way to reorient yourself in your relationship to water. And if you just take 24 hours and just live on a gallon or four liters of water, do this four liters challenge. Um, maybe check in with yourself a couple of times that day. Uh, how's this going? What am I using my water for? you'll watch your perspective shift um, and you'll start almost automatically planning your day around how much water you have. And you'll get a little taste of that experience. And for some people, it's enough to get them really activated on the issue. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember hearing you say like what the, the average person uses something like a hundred gallons a day. Is oh, that yeah. correct? Yeah. The average American. A hundred gallons a day. So what are we talking like me making my coffee in the morning, showers, you know, running the dishwasher, that kind yeah, of stuff. Doing your laundry. Um, that's also maybe the water on average that you're putting into your lawn or using for your pet. Um, but it's, it doesn't even include the water sort of embedded in the things you use every day. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of water that goes into your food, for instance, or into your gas of your mm -hmm. car, into that production process. But this is just the actual liquid water that you're using in your household. Yeah, well, it's funny because my dad was getting really fed up with a water bill. It's not like he's strapped for cash, but he decided to get rid of all our uh, lawn and get like fake golf course grass <laughs> put yeah, in dad. Uh, over okay. Christmas. And you know what? It looks amazing. Like so many people totally. came by the house and were like, oh, where did you do? How did you do this? And he's like, this is so great. And he told me their water bill 
went from like $400 a month to like $30 a month. And there are a lot of municipalities that will give you rebates to do that, especially here in California. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, and you know how it is in Southern California where, you know, communities are obnoxious as shit about, you know, making sure every house has beautiful landscaping. And he was just like, this is some bullshit. I'm not spending this much money on water. So he basically went and redid the entire front yard. And honestly, the most beautiful thing about this is it looks like that all the time. <laughs> no more landscapers, no more water bill. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, so, I love that. So we've talked about politicians. We've talked about sort of what this would look like, mm-hmm. you know, for each of us to experience this, which just thinking about it, I'm, you know, kind of like, wow, that sounds way harder. And I think it would definitely make me hyper aware of just how much water I use every day. Does our individual behavior with the way we use water affect, you know, these communities as well? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think not in the obvious way, not in that, like, you know, if you, Srini, don't use water, it's going to get used somewhere else and it'll be more available to someone in, say, a colonia along the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas. But um, your relationship to water really underpins your decisions, um, especially in the economy. And I think that is Mm -hmm. where a lot of the change needs to be driven. I mean, actual individual consumption of water only only accounts for maybe between 8 and 12% of overall water consumption. Um, The vast majority of it is in agriculture and then maybe a good 20% in industry. Um, And if we're going to force those those sectors of the economy to become more conscious, if we we need to develop a deeper relationship to the resource so that we care enough to make decisions about what we buy and how we travel and what we consume based on our relationship to water. Um, And I think, you know, this is becoming even more, you know, even more important as climate change marches on um, and as the effects of it get more yeah. and more intense. And as we push toward, you know, additional degrees Celsius and warming over time, I think um, we have to fall in love with water and start making decisions from that place. Um, and when we do, systems can change. Um, I, I think mm-hmm. I've seen it myself just during COVID. I think we were really active at the beginning of COVID. I remember writing an op-ed for the New York Times just in the first few weeks because we had a client who who we lost on the Navajo Nation to COVID because they couldn't they couldn't maintain social distance. They had to break it to go collect water and to haul it to their elderly relatives because they needed to survive. But in doing so they were exposed to the early strain of the of the pandemic and and this man brought it to his mother and they both died and it was really tough for the team and for the community to to see that this this completely preventable thing was happening because someone didn't have access to running water and that that narrative really shifted the way a lot of government agencies we work with and tribal folks and even the press were looking at this issue and it got a lot of attention and money and policy change driven to some of these communities like more change in just a couple months and certainly over the course of the pandemic than we'd seen in decades before then um, so wow. it, it can matter like if your perspective shifts, um, and your behavior shifts because of it, it can have a huge impact. Yeah. So you know, we've kind of talked about the roles and responsibilities of people in this, a, a couple of things. One is mm-hmm. I wonder for a media creator like me, or even the press like CNN, you know, or mainstream media, what is their responsibility in all of this to get this narrative out? And then what are the actual solutions that 
you know, can solve this problem? Like, how does it finally get solved where it's no longer an issue? Yeah, well, I think I think storytelling is one of the solutions. We talked about how invisible those communities have been and how they haven't had agency in telling their own story. And I think that is something we've really worked to center at digdeep.org. Like really, how do we partner with communities and take this approach that's really the center of our work, which is nothing about them without them? I mean, you can see it in the way we're organized as a as as an institution. We have almost 80 employees and and 40% of us have lived or are currently living without running water ourselves. 100% of our managers and directors are from communities that we serve. We build our teams inside these communities. It's also the way we approach the work. Like when we build infrastructure projects, which we'll talk about in a second, like that is a community-led process with a tremendous amount of buy-in on not just the, the construction process, but also the design process and long-term sustainability. It's also how we approach fundraising and storytelling and trying to drive a narrative on this project. The best way we found is really to give our clients a chance to, to step up and control that narrative themselves to tell their own story. Um, one of, one of the most powerful ones to come up recently has been, um, a woman who I met on the Navajo nation many years ago, we were trying to talk about this, this economic impact and how this impacts people's lives. And, and I remember visiting her house for the first time um, on a water truck, um, which is one of the technologies we use in rural areas to reach people's houses where water lines can't reach. We'll deliver water by truck and then we'll store it in an underground container that maybe holds a couple thousand gallons, keeps it safe and uses solar power to pump it into the house through a sink and a shower and a toilet and a water heater. And people get the same hot and cold running water that you or I enjoy on the Navajo Water Project where we use this tech. Um but it's a system that their community that that fits the sort of technical needs of their community and that their community can manage. And it creates jobs for water truck drivers and system operators and water and solar technicians. Anyway, I got to this woman's house and uh, she ran out and, and grabbed a bucket of water and brought it into the kitchen and started making tamales. And I followed her in and said, oh, this is so great. You know, you're having family over. And she was like, no, let me let me tell you a story. I, I'm making tamales because... I put them in this cooler and I put my license on and I walk down the hill and I sell them and I sell them for gas money. And she explained that her husband, who was the primary breadwinner of the house, he'd been injured at work, hurt his foot. And without running water at home, they couldn't keep the injury clean. It became infected. He got gangrene and he had been taken to the hospital 50 miles away and he'd been treated and he was better. But after he was uh, finished with his treatment and left the hospital, he'd been sleeping on the streets of this neighboring town, Gallup, New Mexico, for like a week because no clean water meant no tamales and no tamales meant no gas money and no gas money meant no husband and no husband meant no income. And, you know, these families we work with live on just the edge of this economic cliff all the time. Um, and really like when you hear a story like that, it makes everything so much more real, right? You really like drop into it. Like, Whoa, what would, what would that be like if I lived my normal life right here in the U.S. in my house and all of a sudden, I didn't have access to one thing and everything else sort of fell apart. Um, and I think that storytelling, giving giving folks that voice, not only on the, on the problem side, but also on the solution side, what it feels like to turn on the tap in your house for the first time, what that moment is like to hear that water coming out of your tap or to hear that toilet flush. Um, that's like a, a really powerful engine for solutions. Amazing. Well, um, I am just kind of blown away by all of this. Like I said, to me, it's kind of stunning to learn all of this. Uh, 
and really kind of be aware of it at another level. So I have uh, one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's, I think it's authenticity. I thought hard, I thought long and hard about how to answer this question. <laughs> and I thought like, is that interesting enough authenticity? It seems kind of trite, but I think it's true. I think, I think you can really sense it um, in your interactions with somebody and in your interactions with, with a brand, with a nonprofit. You know, I think people aren't stupid. We exist, we exist not only on this sort of intellectual level, but also on a deeply emotional level. And we can sense when the way we approach problems and the way we approach each other is authentic. And I think, you know, that makes something memorable and unmistakable and powerful and, and helps you drop into it. I think it's authenticity. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? <laughs> well, I don't know about wisdom, but you can find out everything about <laughs> you can find out everything about our work at digdeep.org, um, and you can support it directly and learn about all the places that we're working in the U.S. to provide access to clean running water for folks that don't have it. And I'm just really grateful for this for this platform, Trini. I, I think this has been awesome. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.